0: Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best in life are free, but you can give them to the best and be the
1: From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, joining me this week, senior analyst Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey Chris. Hey. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We've got a conversation with best selling author Ben Mesrick. And as always, we've got a couple of stocks on our radar. But for the second week in a row, we begin with the big macro. Consumer prices in the U.S. rose more than 6% in October. This is the biggest surge in inflation in more than 30 years. Andy, inflation obviously affects us as consumers. How should we think about this news as investors?
2: Yeah, Chris, you gotta go back to my Ann Arbor days and uh, see inflation numbers like this back in the early '90s. Uh, I think this is one reason again why we continue to see stocks doing so well over the last few months, not just because of the unlocking from the COVID pandemic, but I think really when you when investors are looking at places to put money and looking for returns. The fixed income market just continues to look less and less attractive um, to so many investors who are trying to save for retirement, build a nest egg, and I think that's just driven a lot of capital into the markets. And you, I mean, you just think about like now, if you're trying to buy a bond, a fixed instrument, I mean, you even going out years and years, considering where inflation is today, you're just not going to make any money on that. On you're not going to make a good return on that on that um, instrument. So whether it's five years, thirty years, long term, short term, I think investors are just saying that's just not the place I want to be, and so they're piling monies in, into into stocks. We've seen stocks just continue. They're they're going to pull back a little bit. They pulled back a little bit this week, Chris. But you know, for the past five weeks, they continue to march higher and higher. You still see the forward earnings, um, the the, the price earnings ratio on the S P 500 is still less than twenty, right around twenty. So it's not unrealistic, and it's not. It's still a place to put your money into. Hopefully, have a. return turn of you know maybe mid to high single digits over the next few years probably not going to see the you know 12 to 15% per year we've seen over the last few years but again thinking about inflation and thinking about ways to be able to protect against that Um, the risk of inflation, not just this year, but maybe higher than what we've seen over the last 10 years. Um, Companies and stocks continue to be the the most attractive opportunity for investors. Stocks and companies have pricing power, Chris, so they can fight off that inflation certainly better than fixed instruments can.
1: Jason, I'm assuming this doesn't change your feeling about stocks in general, but does the inflation news maybe affect how you look at certain industries or certain classes of stocks?
0: Yeah, I mean, I I think that's that's a good that's a good question. You're right. It generally speaking doesn't change the way I view investing, particularly in stocks. I mean, I've said before the the correct response to inflation for investors is not to just stop investing, right? You want to keep investing, but but I do think it, it is it's worth being a little bit more, uh, being a little bit pickier, uh, looking for those markets where you feel like companies are either they're selling those goods and services that people either need or really really want, uh, companies with proven track records of pricing power over time. Uh, those are those are the companies where I think investors should probably focus more attention during stretches like this. Uh, and, and, and we'll, you know we'll get into to Disney later on in the show here, but I, I think Disney's a very good example there of a, a business that's suffering right now in the near term because of expenses, because of some inflationary pressures. But you could also argue that over time Disney does have some pricing power that they've been able to exercise. So uh, you start looking for some of those some of those ideas where the market may be it may be a little bit out of favor in the near term, but that could represent some long-term opportunity
2: you know it's interesting Chris you think about as Jason mentioned different parts of the market and the uh, the concern a lot with in- increasing inflation which leads to increasing eventually increasing interest rates as the Fed at some point will start to increase interest rates they're going to do their tapering um, probably quicker than what I think um, they originally had thought. But that increasing interest rate is bad news for tech and for companies that are unprofitable because it stretches out the, the looking out years and years ahead. The interest rates are going to be much higher, and that's going to hurt them. Yet, I think those businesses are the ones that truly have much more flexibility because their cost structure is a little bit a little bit more variable, and they might be able to show that profit increasing faster than what the market um, long-term expects. so I continue to be excited about some of these innovative tech companies because of the not just the markets they're serving, but the flexibility around their business
1: models. From the big macro to the big split, on Friday, Johnson & Johnson announced plans to separate its consumer products business from the medical device and pharmaceutical divisions. This will happen in the next 18 to 24 months, with a number of big decisions still to be made, including who's going to run the consumer products business, what it will be called, and how the transaction will affect current J&J shareholders. But on the surface, Jason, separating the regulated parts of J&J's business from the -the over-the-counter products looks like a smart move.
0: Yeah, I, I tend to agree. I certainly understand why they're doing this. I mean, when you look at the three main drivers of this business in pharmaceuticals, medical devices, and consumer goods, the, consumers, the consumer goods side of the business doesn't seem to be quite as complimentary. Kinda seems to be a little bit on its own there. And and when you look at the numbers, I mean the pharmaceutical and medical device companies, parts of the company together, when you put those together, they're close to twenty billion dollars of the company's twenty three point three billion dollars in sales they just reported. And if you look at it on an annual basis, we go back to 2019, just because I think 2020 isn't as helpful, uh, consumer goods represented 17% of total revenue for the company, but only 11.3% of operating profit. And it's not like it's growing at breakneck speeds either. So. I, a lot of questions still to be answered here you, you mentioned a few there what are they going to call these companies or what are they going to call this new company who's going to be running the show it does sound like in regard to the transaction it's going to be done in a tax efficient way for shareholders uh, and they were they were very and quick to state that the dividend policy uh, will r- remain intact as well. Um, I think that when you look at Johnson and Johnson as a whole, I mean this is a really strong business. At the end of fiscal 2020, they reported 28 platforms or products with over one billion dollars in annual sales. And of those 28, 12 of those were two billion plus. And and a lot of that does come from the medical devices and the pharmaceutical side. But there are some really powerful brands in that family: Listerine, Johnson. Baby, Tylenol. I mean, those are some of the really strong brands that I think the business can continue to capitalize on, and splitting up might help them allocate resources and dictate strategy a little bit more efficiently.
1: This week, Rivian Automotive went public in the biggest IPO since 2014. The maker of electric vehicles, none of which can be found on actual roads at the moment, priced its stock at $78 ended the week with the stock closing in on $130 a share with a market cap bigger than every automaker not named Tesla. Andy, I know they have some big investors, including Amazon and Ford Motor, but come on.
2: It was a big number, Chris. They raised twelve to thirteen billion dollars with about one hundred fifty-three million shares they issued. Certainly, um, this as as we've seen with Tesla, you need a lot of capital for this business, so they need the capital. Um, Ford owns about twelve percent of the business, and I think Amazon owns maybe eighteen or nineteen percent of the business as well. So, I mean, Ford actually. the stock has actually been performing quite well over the last few months, I think it's up like 45% or so, and I think a lot of that is because of the ownership of, of Rivian. As you mentioned, it has yet to sell a car, focuses on on really the pickup, that's their big their big push with the R1T all electric pickup that comes with a 400 miles of of range on a, on a single charge. Also, like a whole host of other things you can add into it, like tents and flashlights and all kinds of fun things. Um, received about ten and a half billion dollars of funding over the last few years from Amazon. Certainly, a lot of excitement that Rivian is really the next Tesla, and that's they like you mentioned, Chris. There's not you can't find cars yet on the road or trucks yet in the road. They also have an SUV out there. Um, they do. You have a pre-order of uh, about 55,000 of the r one which is the SUV and the R1T, and certainly Amazon has been talking about committing with them. And, um, and uh, looking to, to be able to buy 100,000 um, electric delivery vans from Rivian over the next um, uh, nine or 10 years. So, a lot of excitement around this. It certainly puts, puts um, the, the spotlight on Rivian to, to, to deliver. Um, it, it's, it's pretty admirable what they're trying to do as they are trying to build these cars in a very eco friendly way and, and, and run this business. But, like you say, Chris, at $100 billion market cap, without really any revenue yet, there's a lot of expectations baked into, into the Rivian um, stock price.
1: Shares of Disney down nearly 10% this week after a third quarter report that was highlighted by slowing growth for Disney Plus subscribers. And Jason, to be fair, it wasn't just streaming video, uh, profits and revenue also came in lower than expected.
0: Well, first and foremost, Chris, it's 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 Friday, it's November 12th, so Happy Disney Plus Day, everybody. <laughs> and to, I mean, it, and to you Plus and all Day. who celebrate. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think, hey, listen, we've seen we've seen how powerful Amazon Prime Day can be. Let's see if Disney can pull the same type of lever with Disney Plus Day. Um, we, we talk often, I think, about how great b- this business is. It, it, it's, it's wonderful qualities, the assets, the intellectual property such an ongoing presence in so many lives. But it's not bulletproof. And I think for Bob Chapek, the honeymoon is over and he's going to really need to start showing his mettle here. They're suffering from a bit of a one-two punch here with signs of the subscription business slowing a little bit. Uh, and costs weighing down on the parks and experiences side. And and I I, I certainly understand the near-term concerns there. Uh, Subscribers, I mean, those still look good, right? Disney Plus, 118 million now. Uh, ESPN Plus, eh, it's kind of treading water there. Hulu now, 43.8 million subscribers. They have a total of 179 million, and they're still on track, they believe, for that 230 to 260 million Disney Plus subscriber uh, target by the end of 2024 and getting that streaming business to profitability. But when you look at what really makes up this business today, parks and experiences, right for the most part, and you've, you've got the entertainment side as well. Attendance looks good. Attendance continues to, to grow. I mean, you look at Walt Disney World quarter four attendance it was up double digits versus the quarter ago, uh, so good sequential growth there. And Disneyland continues to come back online as that reopening continues. And per capita spending uh, up. Almost thirty percent versus 2019. Okay, not 2020, but 2019. So I think that's very encouraging. But there are a lot of questions today regarding the margin pressures. There are inflationary concerns as well as general investments in the business. Uh, We're we're seeing, of course, supply chain constraints uh, difficulties uh, there. So I mean, the consumer might be a little bit hesitant. Um, These are things that are weighing on the business in the near term, and they need to make sure they get that traffic uh, going because. that really helps them realize that operating leverage that, that, that they're so so good with. You know, you've got those fixed costs that it, that it takes to keep those parks operating. The more guests, the better. Um, it's a it's understandable the market's trepidation today, but I wouldn't count I wouldn't count Disney out.
1: It was a big week for two stocks in particular. Details right after the break. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Modley Full Money. Chris Hill here with Jason Moser and Andy Cross. Third quarter revenue doubled for Roblox. Daily active users for the online game platform were also up, and shares of Roblox rose more than 30% this week. Andy, you tell me what stood out to you?
2: Well, the bookings, Chris, which is like the cash of the transactions across our platform in any given quarter, was up 20 percent, a little ahead of I think estimates. So there's some certainly some nice growth there. Active use daily active users, as you mentioned, up 31 percent. So again, I think some both those numbers combined show that Roblox is not just um, going away. From uh, as as kids start to, to to get outside and do other things, um, so there's some nice growth there. Highest in the Asia Asia and Pacific with 75 percent growth on the on the user side. Um, Asia Pacific now 20 percent of all their users, which is nice. Hours engaged was up 28 percent. So again, right in that 20 high 20s 30s um, growth rates, which I think are, are pretty attractive. 50 um, percent of users now, Chris, are over the age of 13. That was that's up from 44 45. percent percent um, in uh, a year ago so they're starting to they, they talk a lot about this expanding their 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 opportunities to, to move just from kids much more into into tweens their developers and creators earned hundred thirty million dollars during the quarter that was up 50 percent and they really spend a lot of time focused on their developers so overall when I look at Roblox I own stocks my own own stock myself they continue to make these investments which hurts the profitability although there's also nice growth this year um, on the gross profits, but overall, they continue to make the investments, they're building out the network, expanding their brand opportunities, and I like what they're doing. Um, Dave Bazzucchi, who who's a very large shareholder, founder, CEO, I like the direction he's taking the company.
1: Shares of the Trade Desk up more than 40% this week after third quarter profits and revenue came in higher than expected. Jason, the Trade Desk was not exactly a cheap stock before and now, my goodness. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was a big week, big week for sure, but
0: very understandable given the results. Uh, stellar customer attention, uh, which which remained over 95% during the quarter as it has for the previous seven years, and then you look at the connected TV opportunity, uh, particularly as ad-supported video-on-demand continues to take off, I mean, that's just a big market opportunity there. Moffitt Nath- Nathanson re- recently pegged that market, growing from $4.4 billion in 2020 to $18 billion by 2025. And remember, the Trade Desk provides a demand side platform that its customers use to purchase advertising space. So it really is uh, one of the businesses capitalizing on this opportunity in the biggest way. I think one of the more powerful quotes in the call uh, was, was when CEO Jeff Green said, as we predicted. The most recent iOS changes have had no material impact on our business, and we expect that to remain the case. So, if you're an advertising-supported business and you can say that, I mean, that's really, really big because it's clearly been an issue for a lot of other businesses out there. Uh, Continue to grow support for that unified ID 2.0, focused on protecting privacy while using data in the most efficient way possible. Uh, All things considered, yeah, it's not a cheap-looking stock, but it's a good business that is chasing a massive market opportunity, good leadership. I'm a shareholder myself, Feel very good about it.
1: Not everyone had a great week. Shares of Upstart Holdings fell more than 25%, despite the fact that third quarter revenue for the AI lending platform was higher than analysts were expecting. Andy, Upstart Holdings is a growth company. Isn't this the type of quarter we want to see from a growth company?
2: Well, it is it is nice, Chris, and they, their guidance for the year for the for the fourth quarter at two hundred and fifty five million to two hundred and sixty five million in revenue was ahead of estimates, but it's it's a growth of two hundred percent. So I think they're starting to see a little bit of that taper down, which I think is natural. I think they're starting to see these some of the new new clients they're bringing into their platform, and they are bringing a lot of clients onto the platform. There's some expense to that, so the what they call the contribution profit is a little bit less than it was uh, the previous quarter, and also over last year. So they continue to make these investments in the business. They continue to sign more and more um, uh, banking partners on. Banking partners expanded very rapidly this quarter. So overall, they're making the right investments. They're bringing a lot of people onto the platform. There is a cost to that. So I think some of the investors were uh, looking at that that the operating expenses growing 275 percent year over year and saying, "Oh wow, they are making those investments. So the profitability may not be there." I still like a lot of what they are doing, what Upstart's building, and the business they're creating and long. term I think it looks still very attractive
1: paypal's revenue in the third quarter was lower than expected and guidance for q4 was not exactly what wall street was hoping for shares down nearly 10% this week jason 2021 has not been great for paypal shareholders is 2022 going to be better I think so. Uh, Someone asked me about this on Twitter the other
0: day and I said, look, they're going to push $1.25 trillion through their networks this year while finally putting eBay in the rear view mirror. So, if, if you can see the forest for the trees, I think the market is offering you a gift today. I mean, the shares now around 45 times full-year earnings, and you're right, they guided down, that earnings per share number, they guided down slightly, revenue slightly as well. But I think most of that is due to headwinds from weaning themselves off of that eBay uh, relationship there. We've been talking about that for the past year, knew that this was something that was going to be playing out for 2021. But when you look at the numbers themselves, total payment volume up 24%. If you exclude eBay, revenue grew 25%. They added 13.3 million new accounts. They now have 416 million active accounts using their services. Venmo now with more than 80 million customers in a $240 billion run rate in total payment volume. Uh, Oh, and they inked a nice little relationship there with an up-and-comer. Chris, you may have heard of a little company called Amazon. Yeah. (laughs) So Listen, I I understand the market reacts the way it does when you pull back on guidance like that, uh, but this remains a very good business, obviously leading the way in this fast-developing fintech space. To me, this is one you have to own.
1: All right, guys, we'll see you later in the show. Up next, a conversation with bestselling author Ben Mesrick. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. There's no question that one of the biggest investing headlines of 2021 is the story of GameStop and Reddit. It's a tale wonderfully captured in Ben Mesrick's new book, The Anti-Social Network, The GameStop Squeeze, and the ragtag group of amateur traders that brought Wall Street to its knees. Mesrick has written multiple bestsellers, including The Accidental Billionaires, which was adapted into the Oscar-winning film, The Social Network. Recently, Motley Fool analyst Maria Gallagher talked with Ben Mesrick about the rise of meme stocks and how he decided to write this book through the lens of multiple investors.
2: For
3: the GameStop story, you know, I know we were all familiar with the main characters, which is Roaring Kitty, which was, you know, the Melvin Capital people. Um, and I wanted to get inside the story from, from the perspective of, of people on Reddit who were buying GameStop. Um, so I I I wanted to tell it through the eyes of people that we would recognize, but also who did something interesting. There's a college kid who ended up you know, turning a few thousand dollar investment into a quarter million dollars uh, playing GameStop. And then there's, you know, a single mother of two who's just trying to make enough money to pay for her kids braces. Um, It was a matter of just trying to find people who we might identify with who got caught up in this craziness.
4: Yeah. So in that vein, what would you say, you know, kind of the biggest misconception the general public has about GameStop, Wall Street bets, what happened during this time?
2: Sure.
3: I think that people don't recognize how much of a movement it, it is, and it was. Um, the idea was it wasn't just people trying to make a few bucks uh, on a short squeeze. It was people who were very angry about Wall Street and about being treated poorly, um, going all the way back to 2008, but you know, Occupy Wall Street, the, the banking crisis of, of, of that time. Um, and so it was really sentiment-driven. Um, but I also think another misconception is we have this image in our head of what the Reddit Uh, buyer looks like you know we're picturing you know a nerdy white guy in a corner of a basement somewhere and the reality is it was a very diverse group of people um on that reddit board it was people from all walks of life um who really got involved in this um so that's why i like to call it a revolution um because i think it was much bigger than just you know a bunch of dudes in their basements trying to make a little bit of money.
4: (laughs) Yeah. And I think it's really interesting too. You really highlight the sense of community that a lot of people found in this Reddit, and this Wall Street Butts crowd, especially at a time during the pandemic, when everyone was so physically isolated. Do you think that that played into the factor, that sense of uh, there was no real world that you could actually physically be in? So people found this kind of heightened sense of community online.
3: Absolutely. I don't think this movement could have gotten to this point without the pandemic. It was really people trapped at home, um, sitting on their couches. Uh, they had a little bit of money because of you know the stimulus checks, and, and no one had anything to do. You couldn't go out with friends. You couldn't do anything else. And so as a society, people were turning to things like Reddit, but also the stock market. Um, the stock market was already being gamified and turned into a casino, but suddenly there were millions and millions of people just kind of trapped and angry, <laughs> not just at Wall Street, but at their lives. Everybody's lives got screwed up in such a big way, um, and this was one way of sort of, of of making noise, of of having a voice. So yeah, I absolutely think it was pandemic driven, and with the book, I definitely tried to capture um, this moment in time.
4: Yeah, and so. Something else that I thought was really interesting that you highlight, too, is that kind of interconnectedness, not only of the people on Wall Street bets, but within the structure of this, the back end. So you talk about the connections between Citadel, Melvin Capital, Robinhood. So can you explain a little bit for people who maybe aren't familiar about those relationships and how they impact us as retail investors, since, you know, we're now all used to uh, no commission trade? So can you explain a little bit about about those dynamics?
3: Sure, absolutely. And and it, it gets very complex, but I'm a layman. And so if I can understand it, I think anybody can understand it. But the reality is, you know, uh, these brokers like, like Robinhood that appear more and more um, and are getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And really, most retail traders use something like Robinhood. Um, they don't charge you any fees. Right. And, and uh, you don't have any minimum balances, but they don't actually make their money off of you. Um, you're not actually their customer. You're their product. Um, they make their money off of the money, uh, the, the market makers, people like Citadel, who sit at the center of the U.S. economy. So when you buy a stock through Robinhood, it doesn't happen instantly. What, although it looks like it happens instantly, like you buy some GameStop and it appears in your account. What's really happening is a two-day process where you put up a certain amount of money to buy GameStop. Robinhood takes your trades and then essentially sells them to Citadel. Citadel makes the trade happen. This happens over a two-day period, which is called T plus two clearing. Um, And then they get you the best deal possible, and then they essentially pay Robinhood for all of these different trades. It's called payment for order flow. Um, And in the end, everyone's happy when it works well, because you get a good deal. You don't actually have to pay any commissions. Robinhood makes money on the trade, but doesn't have to charge you anything. And Citadel makes tons of money because they are running all the trades and they can see what's going to happen. They can make money off of the trades and they make money by placing the trades. They get a little bit in between. Um, So that's essentially how the process works. But it's actually very ugly when you look at it from the perspective of, who's making money off of who and who has incentives to do what. And that's where it gets very murky when when something like a giant short squeeze happens. Um, And that's where kind of all the drama comes from. But that's the sort of connection. Citadel sits at the center of it. Robinhood is between us and them in a way. And then regular retail traders all use these brokerages to, to move their trades back and forth.
4: Yeah, I feel like that interconnection is so fascinating between because you you feel like you have well you have Melvin Capital and you you highlighted a lot in the book the people saying like specifically we're going to take this hedge fund down but then you also have in the back end Citadel who's going to come in and help or you Citadel is making money from the fact that you're doing all of this so I think that just that interconnection is something that people don't understand as well because it's so confusing and when it works. You don't really have to think about it, but then when something like this happens, it really highlights that kind of um, that kind of relationship that happens on the back end. And so, I, I'd be curious to think, you know, where are where do you think we are in terms of Wall Street's bets versus Wall Street in this in this story? Do you think hedge funds are prepared for this? Do you think this is going to really change anything as life turns back to normal? Where do you think we are in this story?
3: Yeah, I think this is the beginning of the story, and I, I really think that. That what happened with GameStop um, is just sort of the forerunner for a massive shift in how Wall Street works. Um, You know, you have hedge funds, and and, and they're kind of the enemy to the retail trader in, in some ways. And then you have the retail trader, which previous to this moment in time was very weak. It was lots of disparate people who were all doing their own sorts of things. The idea that they can move as one is something very new. The idea that social media allows millions and millions of retail traders to work together as if they're one giant hedge fund, um, they really can take down Wall Street. The idea is this Melvin Capital, which was this multi-billion dollar fund, got sideswiped, um, got forced into this you know horrible squeeze situation and lost half of the value of their firm um, because a whole bunch of people sitting on their couches were communicating with each other. Um, and what this does is it changes everything. The idea of the mean stock is really here to stay. The idea that a whole big group of people can decide that a stock is gonna go up. And once they decide that, it will go up, um, as long as they all hold together you know, and don't sell it. Um, the fundamentals of a company don't actually matter if there's a large group of people who decide the stock should go up. It doesn't really matter what GameStop does. What matters is what we feel about GME. Um, and this is similar to what's happening in crypto with Dogecoin, which is a ridiculous thing, right? There's no <laughs> there's no actual value to Dogecoin, but if we all decide it's worth something, then it's worth something. So I do think we're going to see this again and again and again. And I do think, the Wall Street on the whole is still not uh, accepting or understanding the movement that's happening here. Um, they are now employing people who are going to scour the Reddit boards and try and figure out, you know, which direction things are going. And they're definitely not going to announce short positions anymore. Um, and they're going to be as quiet as they can about things like that. But on the whole, that's just sort of a Band-Aid over what's going on. Um, you're going to see giant swings like this again and again and again. I think it's going to be very hard to 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 be careful in a market that can swing so rapidly. Um, you know, in a day, 9 million people on Wall Street bets can decide to move a stock. And it's going to be very hard to react to that in general.
4: That's really interesting. And, and so, what do you think about you know that kind of break from fundamentals? You know, we have this kind of prevailing method that the market is mostly rational. There are places where you can get gains because people aren't looking at what you what you are looking at. But in general, I think most investors would say, for the most part, the market acts rationally, and there are times when you can um, exploit that irrationality. But there, for the most part, if you put your money in an index fund. You will do okay. So, where do you think that that kind of disconnect between the fundamentals of a business and the fundamental value of the stock market, and then this idea that well, it doesn't have a, we we care about GME, and if we're all going to do it, we're all going to raise it up. Do you think that they should maybe focus on companies with better fundamentals, or do you think the whole point is that they're doing it for companies that um, are you know forgotten like AMC and GameStop?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think that, that the that the rationality of the market is now in question. Um, I think it's very hard to say that people are going to act rationally when you're talking about millions and millions of, of 22-year-olds, each with $1,000 in the bank and each one wanting to make 10 times, you know? Nobody is trying to make 10% on their money. Everyone's trying to get 10x on their money. And when you have a market full of people, you know, shooting for the moon, um, it's not going to be a rational market. And so I, I totally think that over time it's going to get worse and worse and worse from one perspective. It's gonna be more and more people taking moonshots and trying to work together to make massive fortunes. I mean you look at what happens, you know, again, I go back to crypto and Bitcoin. And this is something that goes from a few thousand dollars to fifty thousand dollars in a year, and people are still unhappy. They're saying, when's it gonna to get to a hundred thousand? And that's not acting rationally, right? That's you know, a need to make these giant YOLO trades, which is what we're gonna see again and again. So I don't think that Wall Street is is going to be safe. It's not going to be a safe place to invest. I think the fundamentals are more and more going to be um, less and less important, and and more and more important is going to be sentiment, nostalgia. You know, the idea that AMC, we love movie theaters, um, so we're all going to you know grab AMC and hold on to it, and the idea that someone would short AMC is almost offensive, (laughs) even though it might make financial sense to short C, People are going to be very upset at that maneuver. And so I think sentiment is really going to guide markets.
4: Interesting. Yeah. I wonder where that's going to, where there is going to be ever maybe some balance between you have like this small fringe and then, you know, mainstream. Um, And so what it would be your opinion on, you know, the gamification of investing. When we think about Robinhood, we, you highlighted in the book as well, you know, that rush when people got confetti on their first trade and like the rush of dopamine when you make a trade and really having it um, resemble gambling, right? The slot machines and the the fun colors and like kind of that interest. Do you think that that's a, good thing because you know you're getting people more interested and more excited about investing or do you think it's actually ending up doing more harm because people are not thinking, let's let me try and get 10% because I can build up a nest egg for the rest of my life. They're looking like, let me get 10X in the next five minutes.
3: Yeah, I mean I think Robinhood is sort of um you know it's a wonderful app. I like it, everyone likes it, but it really is pushing us towards turning it all to a giant casino um with sort of a video game kind of console to it. Um, everyone's becoming a gambler. I mean, college kids that used to gamble on sports are gambling on the stock market now. And average people are now looking at their portfolio as, as a gambler looks at a portfolio, not as someone who's trying to make a few percentage points. And, and, and you know. So I do think the gamification of, of Wall Street, you know, let's be fair, it was always a game. But now everyone gets to play. <laughs> Suddenly, it's not just people in suits and ties on Wall Street playing. It's everyone um, can join in on this game. But it is a game um, and it is gambling to some extent. And I think overall, this may be negative. Um, the idea of democratizing finance is very good and you want more and more people to be in the market, but people aren't coming with a level of education. They're not coming with knowledge of, of, of how the market works. They're coming with, you know, I'm gonna hit a home run, I'm gonna buy GameStop, it's gonna go to 500. Um, and so that's where it starts to get dangerous. I, I think it's great that more and more people are, are trading and, and I think what, what Robinhood represents is something great, the ability to be a, a trader without actually having to spend years learning how to do it. Um, but there's no warnings, you know, there's not enough warnings. And I think that it's, it's dangerous without a certain level of education, um, and understanding. Um, I, I've, I've always so, sort of been intrigued by the idea of risk and what people's personal risk is. And the reality is someone with very little money and, and, and no real, you know, Nest egg or anything like that um, is risking a whole lot more than some Wall Street trader. A Wall Street trader loses on a trade, and you know they get up the next morning and they start again. But if you lose your rent money, um, you don't get up and start again the next day. Um, so I think there's not uh, an, an equitable amount of risk. Um, so when you democratize finance to everyone, there's a lot of people who are taking enormous risks with their lives um, and not really realizing it.
1: The book is the anti-social network. The GameStop Squeeze and the ragtag group of amateur traders that brought Wall Street to its knees. You can find it wherever you find books. But up next, Jason Moser and Andy Cross are coming back with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. All together now, all
2: together, all together. look, a look. You
1: holler, hope. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Andy Cross and Jason Moser. Before we get to radar stocks, guys, Arby's may have the meats, but now they also have the vodka. Starting next week for a limited time, Arby's vodka. Will be available for sixty dollars a bottle. It will come in two flavors: curly fry and crinkle fry. So, Jason Moser, if you want a little spice in your vodka, good news. <laughs> well, I, I don't really drink a whole lot of
0: vodka, and I don't know that this makes me want to want to really start. Um, but, but I, I mean, I understand. Like, we are in a day and age where brands, particularly these these quick service brands, need to branch out and and capitalize on their brand to, to whatever extent that they can it feels like and I love that Mac has a great phrase for this the brand permission in and, and Mac I agree with you I just don't think that Arby's has the brand permission here to pull this off but I guess we'll see
2: I do like myself myself a little Bloody Mary Chris and so maybe the little spice in a Bloody Mary you know with some vodka that that might do it
0: I feel like it's better with the jamoka shake to me like that's what Arby's does so well I mean, the fries are good, don't get me wrong, but it just it feels like the Jamocha shake vodka combo makes more sense than the fries. But the fries thing is definitely an attention getter.
1: Let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Rick Engdahl, is going to hit you with a question. Andy, you're up first. What are you looking at this week?
2: Rick, Chris, I'm looking at C Limited, symbol SE, uh, 140. 184 billion dollar e-commerce gaming um, entertainment company um, that focuses mostly on emerging markets, including um, uh, Asia and Latin America. Its gaming business is really the the driver of a lot of the growth. Um, it's one of the largest gaming developers and publishers across 130 countries. Free Fire is the biggest game. Um, it's a mobile battle royale game uh, that's been that was the most downloaded game um, of the last year. Half its revenues come. From gaming, but it's also really growing out its e commerce business called Shopee and also its its payments business, um, which is really exciting as they kind of merge those two together. So, when you look at the e commerce market overall, um, Rick, and I look at the growth picture growing uh, north of 100%, continuing to grow very, very attractive in those markets. It's It's going to do about 9 billion in sales, about a 15 times multiple. I don't think that's too expensive. Um, still not making money, but a lot of growth baked into the price. And I think it could be worth it. Rick,
1: question about C Limited?
3: Yeah, I've heard C Limited referred to as the Amazon of Asia. And I'm just wondering the obvious question Do they have a space program? Are they sending celebrities to space? Because I don't,
2: I don't think so, Rick. It is like that Amazon, Mercado Libre, Activision, Blizzard all kind of merged together. I don't yet see the space okay.
1: picture yet. Jason Moser, what are you looking at?
0: Yeah, taking a look at Unity Software ticker is U. Uh, or, uh, Unity reported earnings earlier this week. It was interesting to see how the stock was selling off after hours, only to finish up strongly the next day. And it's actually had a great week with shares up better than twenty percent. Uh, but I understand why. I mean, they grew revenue by forty three percent, beat their internal guidance handily. Uh, now with nine hundred seventy three customers each generating more than one hundred thousand dollars in revenue over over the last year versus seven hundred thirty nine uh, a year ago. And, and I think the biggest news, they're acquiring visual effects company Weta Digital, uh, best known, I think, for a lot of the stuff that you've seen in movies uh, in the Lord of the Rings franchise. But that's going to bring a lot of talent, tools, and assets under their umbrella that that will enable creators around the world to continue building using Unity well beyond just games. Right? I think they're doing a very good job of continuing to build out to other verticals, which is really
1: the encouraging part of the story. Rick, question about Unity software?
3: Sure. Jason, you're a parent, I'm a parent. Is there a way to get our kids off of playing games and into creating games with this? Is there a masterclass
0: for Unity or something? (laughs) I like that mindset there. Thankfully... You know, we're not a big gaming household, and so consequently, my my girls aren't big gamers, but you're, you're thinking of it the right way. And maybe it's just a matter of getting them invested earlier and in, in teaching them about how these businesses work. Because, yeah, uh, it's like teach them, teach him, uh, give a man a fish versus teaching him how to fish, right? Let's teach him how to fish.
1: <laughs> what do you want to add, Rick? Well, full disclosure, I actually
3: own a little bit of both of these, um, but I have to say, Unity is more fun right now. Yeah.
1: We're out of time. We'll see everybody next week.